Well, it is a privilege to uh, serve you this morning by bringing you the Word of God in the place of our beloved pastor. He will be back next week, uh, Lord willing. And so I thought I'd take this opportunity on a Mother's Day to speak to how the Christian community can value motherhood. You know, it seems like motherhood today is one of the most appreciated and yet one of the most avoided occupations of our day. People still appreciate what their mothers do for them. It's hard to avoid that. Uh, And therefore, they buy the cards, they post the sentimental videos, they send the texts. Uh, They are uh, all about thanking their mothers, and appropriately so. And uh, as this country uh, sees the increasing disappearance of fathers in families, uh, mothers continue to stick with their children. It is a, a, a rare sight for a mother to leave her children, and we recognize it as extremely unnatural. And therefore, we uh, recognize that there is much to thank our mothers for, and that gratitude must not decrease, it must increase. And yet, with all this thankfulness, Motherhood is also avoided, like no other time in human history. Millennials are getting married later than their predecessors, as many statisticians have tried to show. The average age of marriage today is 27 for women and 29 for men. Many are also delaying having children until later, until their careers are farther along. The average age of a first birth is at an all-time high at 26. But this repudiation of motherhood or this delay of motherhood even has only been made possible because of the wealth and the technology of the past century. In poorer societal settings, children are necessary for survival, as we'll see in the scriptures. It's made uh, clear there. Because they take care of you when you're old. There's no Uh, governmental systems in which uh, money is getting poured into to support you. You need uh, children around and grandchildren around to support you when you can't uh, help yourself. And they carried on the family industry. Uh, Your job, your ways of keeping the family alive would not continue if you did not continue to have children. Uh, But in our wealthy societies, these needs uh, aren't as great, and therefore we have the option to be able to push these things aside. And of course, probably one of the greatest reasons for this delay, or sometimes even the rejection of motherhood, is, has come as, as a result of the birth control technologies that have been invented within the last century. With the advent of the pill, people can now have sex without children. Children and sex have been divorced. Before, a child was always a possible result of intercourse, and the pill and other birth control methods have severed that link. So while the, first, the age of first marriage and having, uh, when women have their first child is going up, this doesn't mean that women or men are delaying having sex. By the time teens graduate from high school, more than half have already had their first sexual encounter. By age 20, it climbs to 75%. Sure, teen pregnancies are down, but that brings us back to the pill. Pills that, force, that both seek to prevent conception and those like the morning after pill that our early abortive fashions. Now, there are other options for delaying motherhood even more. You have no doubt you've heard that several companies are in the news today for paying for women in their organizations to freeze their eggs until a later time when uh, after their career has um, taken its full uh, path, they can then have, uh, be a, become a mother when they would like to. So motherhood has fallen on hard times. But the church, the Christian community, must be a counter voice to these trends. Motherhood is not something to be avoided, to be repudiated, or to be looked down upon. Motherhood must be valued and treasured. I want to be clear about who I'm speaking to this morning. I'm not just speaking to half of the congregation. I'm not just speaking to those of you who are mothers. I am addressing the entire church. I'm addressing young and old, single, married, those with children, and those without. 
because it is the whole Christian community that functions as a countercultural force in our world today. Therefore, we all must affirm what God affirms. We all must value what God values. We must let this world know what true reality is supposed to look like, what God's reality is, what true reality in this world, in his universe, looks like. Not a version of reality that they convince themselves is true. We're called to be salt and light, as Jesus told us in Matthew chapter 5. We don't exist for ourselves. We exist for others. We live our lives to, to display the glory of God to this watching world. And our lives then find their ultimate purpose as we give ourselves for the good of others to the glory of God. So, therefore, in this area of motherhood, we must be a shining light and bring the salty flavor to our neighborhoods, to our workplaces, to our families, and to our nation about God's opinion of motherhood. And so, we're going to look at several principles this morning for, uh, that will help us to value motherhood. Four principles. I believe those of you that have uh, the paper with the outline in it, it says three principles. I added one in. Um, I think I have the permission to do that. Um, so you can just scratch out three, right? Four. Um, so we're going to see four principles to help us value motherhood. And it's the Christian community can only truly value motherhood by remembering these four biblical principles. So principle number one, the worth of women, the worth of women. If we're going to see motherhood as valuable, we must realize that God sees women as valuable. And one of the ways that the role of women in the home has been attacked has been by misconstruing God's design of the marriage relationship. But the Bible is very clear. Women are equal in worth, but different in role from men. Equal in worth, but different in role from men. Now, like anything else, if we want to truly understand anything in this world, we need to go back to the source of it all. We need to go back to the foundation of all things, and that is God. Therefore, if we're going to understand motherhood correctly, we need to get our theology girded up. We need to to strengthen the roots of our theology because everything that uh, we have in this life is founded upon God. Is that my beard? Mothers don't have beards. <laughs> Sorry about that. So as I was saying, everything goes back to God. I think Jesus had a beard, right? Um, no, so everything goes back to God. Therefore, if we're going to understand motherhood correctly, we need to go back to God. We need to go back to the Trinity because you see, God has revealed himself as a triune God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. It is here in the Trinity that we see the blueprint for men and women's relationship within marriage. Because in the Trinity, we see the original relationships. The relationships between the three persons of the Trinity have existed for all of time. Now, if the Trinity has been something you have avoided for most of your Christian life because it sounds too confusing, I ask you to bear with me because uh, it, it is helpful for us to grasp at least some of the most basic realities of the Trinity for us to understand how uh, our relationships exist today. But let me just make a note that it is only the triune God of Christianity that can truly make sense of our relationships. Because, see, if you think of any other worldview, any other starting point for your beliefs, how do you get loving relationships like we see in creation, like you experience in your family? How do you get loving relationships out of millions of impersonal re- chemical reactions like Darwinism purports? It's random, it's impersonal, and all of a sudden you just get love? How does that happen? Or how do you explain our relationships when you believe that we came from a solitary being like, it, like in Islam? This guy just sat uh, for all of eternity past by himself, and now he knows how to love? It doesn't make sense. Your starting point has to explain the reality that we live in every day. 
And therefore, I believe that triune God is the only one that can explain the, the love and the relationships that we have. So how does the Trinity support the claim that women are equal in worth but different in role? It's found in the fact that the Father, Son, and Spirit are all equal in worth but different in role themselves. They are all 100% God. Can we agree upon that? All persons of the Godhead are 100% God. They aren't uh, 33% God, each of them. They are all 100% God, but they all have different roles. Just think about salvation, right? It wasn't all three persons of the Godhead that died upon the cross. That was one person of the Godhead. That was God the Son. God the Father sent him And God the Father sent the Spirit in salvation. The Father elects us. The Son purchased our redemption, and the Spirit applies that redemption to our hearts. If you just begin to read through the New Testament with the lens of seeing which role the person of the Trinity has, you're going to see that there's a great variety that each person within the Godhead plays, the roles that they play. Even in creation. We see that in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. But we read in Colossians that God created all things through the Son. And we read in in Genesis 1-2 that the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. All the persons of the Trinity were there, involved in creation in their own unique ways. Therefore, by, by extension, it is false to say that having a different function or role denotes lesser importance or worth. It's false to say that having a different function or role denotes lesser importance or worth. Because in God's universe, that's not true. In God's universe, there is equality in being and personhood in essence, but a difference in role. But more specifically, as it relates to men and women within marriage, authority and submission are not a construct of humanity. Not just something that just came about as convenient as a way to control things and for men and women to get along. Authority and submission are found in our God. I want you to turn to the book of John, chapter 5. John chapter 5, verse 36. He says, But the testimony that I have, this is Jesus speaking, is greater than that of John. For the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I am doing, bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. And the Father who sent me, he himself bore witness about me. His voice you have never heard, his form you have never seen. And you do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe the one whom he has sent. And what you want you to see here is that the Father sent the Son. The Father gives testimony to the Son's authority. And so it's the Father that ultimately has the authority, and he has delegated that and given it to his son to accomplish the works that are, he has for him to do upon the earth. Scroll up just to verse uh, 27 of the same chapter. Chapter 5, verse 27, it says, And he has given him, this is God the Father has given the Son, authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. You see, God the Father has given authority to the Son. The Father possesses all the authority, and He has delegated to the Son. He has sent the Son. The Son does what His Father wants Him to do. So God is the one in authority. The Son is the one in submission to the Father. How does the Son respond to that? Does He have a problem with being in submission to His Father? Not at all. He absolutely loves it. He's absolutely thrilled to be in submission to his father. Look, look at chapter 4, uh, yeah, chapter 4, verse 34. 
This is at the end of the story of the woman at the well. And uh, Jesus has this conversation with her. And she leaves. And the disciples come back after trying to get lunch. And, uh, and they say, hey, here's some food. Eat it. He's like, I've already got food. They're like, what are you talking about? Who gave you food? And then he says here in verse 34, he says, Jesus said to them, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. It's his food. He says, my main sustenance, the thing that I get the source of life from is to do what my father wants me to do. I love this. I love to do what my father wants me to do. Flip over to back to chapter five. Verse 30, I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just, because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Chapter 6, chapter 6, verse... That was not the verse I was thinking of, so we'll just... Leave it there. Um, We see the point. Jesus understands that he's there to do the will of his Father. He loves to do that will. He's in happy submission. He's he's happily obeying his Father. So you see, loving authority, true loving authority is godlike because this is what we see in God the Father. But the converse is also true. Happy submission is also godlike because we see that in the life of the Son. Loving authority, happy submission exist in our God and have existed from eternity past and will continue to exist in eternity future. Therefore, when God calls men to be the loving leader of the home and for women to joyfully submit to their husbands, he is merely calling them to model what already exists in our triune God. This is not some strange paradigm that's, that's shoved upon humanity. This is baked in creation from the very one who created us. Turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Paul shows this direct link to the authority and submission in the Godhead trickling down into the authority and submission that exists within marriage. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 3. He says, But I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ. The head of a wife is her husband. And the head of Christ is God. It's simple, right? The head of Christ, the authority over Christ, is God the Father. And the authority over a wife is her husband. So Paul makes very clear the authority linkage here and how it flows down into creation, starting in the Godhead itself. Now, we know that our culture has been in an all-out mission to try to erase any distinctions between men and women. Even though feminism began as a movement to help raise the morals of society and to get equal voting rights under the law, which are good, it morphed into a movement seeking to be liberated from the constraints of traditional women's roles. And while I believe that there are some legitimate historical factors to why feminism arose in the West in the 18th and 19th century instead of some other period of history, and while equality of personhood is absolutely just and right, as we've been saying, Feminism, as it's often used today, ultimately rejects the creator's distinctions between the roles of men and women. Authority and submission are seen as evil and need to be thrown out. And therefore, the line is erased. And what you lose is like if you took a song in which you've got melody and harmony, two different notes that play together to create a beautiful tune, and you have to flatten it all out and say, no, everyone's got to play the same exact note. And sure, yeah, everyone can play the same exact note, but it's not nearly as beautiful. In the same way, God has designed 
the, the beauty of marriage to be this difference and yet equality. And yet they, they, they come together, they harmonize, and it's a beautiful thing. And so if we're going to value motherhood, we need to begin by seeing that women are of the same value as men at the core. Even if that means that they hold a different role. And the Christian community needs to be among the first to say that loud and clear. That any demeaning of women is not to be tolerated, is not to be allowed. That is nowhere to be found in biblical Christianity. So principle number one, the worth of women. Principle number two, the value of children. The value of children. If motherhood is going to be seen as valuable to the church and to society, then we must see that children are gifts and not burdens. Let's turn to Psalm 127. Psalm chapter 127. Let's look at verses 3 through 5. Solomon, here, one of his few psalms, he writes, Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord, the fruit of the womb a reward. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior are the children of one's youth. Blessed is the man who fills his quiver with them, He shall not be put to shame when he speaks with his enemies in the gate. Notice that he comes out very clearly and says that children are a heritage or a gift from the Lord. They are a reward. Part of God's reward and blessing to us here on this earth and life under the sun is by giving us children. Part of the ways that he wants to put a smile on our face is by giving children. And notice explicitly that children are from the Lord, he says. They don't just happen. It's not just a natural byproduct of physical processes. This is a gift directly from the hand of God. God is the giver. He's the one who brings the offspring. He is not disinterested in children. He is very interested and he happily gives them. Now, as he goes on, he, like we said earlier, uh, in this agrarian society and uh, the, uh, the children, particularly the sons of one's youth, as it says in verse 4, um, are like arrows in the hand of a warrior. Um, once you're old and can't get out of the chair, your sons are able to rise up and protect you. And able to, uh, whether that be in the legal courts at the, at, the, at the town gate, it says in verse 5, the enemies at the gate and they're trying to steal your property, or whether that's uh, physical protection. But you can see, Uh, Solomon recognizes the value of having children. Well, let's flip to the next psalm, Psalm 128. Let's see a similar message in verses 1 through 4. Blessed is everyone who fears the Lord, who walks in his ways. You shall eat the fruit of the labor of your hands. You shall be blessed, and it shall be well with you. Your wife will be like a fruitful vine within your house. Your children will be like olive shoots around your table. Behold, thus shall the man be blessed who fears the Lord. What is the blessing of the one who fears the Lord and walks in his ways? One of those ways is children. Verse 4, I like how the, the Holman translates it. It says, in this very way, the man who fears the Lord will be blessed. In this very way, with children, God blesses those who fear the Lord. So children are a blessing from our creator. Therefore, the Christian community must love children. We must embrace them as Christ did. Remember the disciples? They thought that the children were burdens. They're like, get away, you pesky little kids. And Christ says, no, let the little children come to me. He embraced them and so should we. The Christian community should also have babies. Um, you know, God's first instructions to humans on the planet back in Genesis chapter one, this is somewhat of a paraphrase, but he basically says, have babies. That was his command. He said, be fruitful, multiply and fill the earth, which, uh, 
I don't know what the message says. Maybe it says something like that, have babies and, and fill the earth. Um, but the whole church needs to uh, be bleeding with this ethos, needs to value what God values. And one of the things that God values is that he values children. Let not anyone show up at a church service or a small group or a gathering and get a feeling that children are a nuisance or a burden to be getting rid of. Let us not chime in in the chatter with coworkers about how their kids are a drag. Let's stand up for the children in our society, stand up for the children in our homes and in our communities, because they are a blessing from the Lord always. Now, let me take a minute to speak to those of you who find Mother's Day to be more painful than joyful. There are those of you who want children and haven't been able to have any, or you've experienced a miscarriage or a loss of a child in some way. It can be hard reading these verses and saying, yes, children are a blessing, but why hasn't God blessed me with one? Or he, he took my blessing away. Let me remind you that God knows your pain. He lost a child as well. He knows the pain of seeing his child separated from him. And therefore, God is not disinterested in your pain. He is a God who understands and a God who loves. God has left you a trail of women to stand with in the scriptures, a trail of tears by Sarah and Rachel and Hannah. See, the Bible doesn't hide that pain of infertility, doesn't hide that pain of losing children either. It's very real about it. And therefore, we know that the scriptures and that God understands our struggle. But let me remind you that your only solace is found in Christ. It's not to pull into yourself and pull away from him. Your only Help for your soul is found in Jesus. He completes you. He fulfills your deepest longings. He heals your pains, heals your wounds. Open yourself up to him. Throw yourself upon him. Cast your cares upon him for he cares for you. Please know that I'm not trying to rub salt in your wound this morning. I believe that you too can be a part of the salt and light that the Christian community is called to be in this world. As it relates to motherhood and children, you too can speak to the value of children. You too can speak to the value of motherhood. You can rejoice with those who rejoice and you can weep with those who weep. You can speak to the high honor that it is to be a mother and the great blessing that children are. You have a part to play in this as well. We all do. No matter what road the Lord brings us upon. I think another way that the church, the Christian community, can show the high value of children and the, the value of motherhood is to adopt. There are so many children around the world who are orphaned and could have their lives changed by being invited into a Christian family. Just like God welcomed us into his family. So this could be a local adoption, a foster adoption, an international adoption. There's many different ways to go about it. But the Christian community can be about welcoming in those who have lost parents or who have been rejected. And therefore, if children are gifts, then motherhood is a high privilege. Mothers get to partake in God's gift They get to grow God's reward within them and get to train them and build them up, which brings us to our next point. The third principle that will help us to value motherhood is the importance of the home. The importance of the home. The home is the building block of society and of the church. 
The home is the most basic society. It's the most basic economy. It's the most basic government. It's the most basic building block of society. You start with the family and it grows from there. That's the story that we see in Genesis, right? It began with the first family. That family grew and it grew into cities and, and whole societies. But the principle still holds true to, to today. That the most basic building block of our society today is what happens in the home. Because you see, what happens in the home eventually filters its way out into society. What happens in the home doesn't stay at home. We often talk about how culture is going and how immoral it is. But if you trace culture all the way back, you end up at the home. You end up at values that changed in the home. This is where habits are formed. This is where morals are learned. This is where worldviews are shaped. So how do the people that are out there making the decisions that they're making now, those worldviews, those morals were shaped as they were growing up. Therefore, the strength of our nation, the strength of our church, depends on the strength, strength of our families and our homes. And therefore, it makes sense that God would charge women to focus their energies in the home. Turn to Titus chapter 2. Titus 2, he's speaking to different groups in the church. And he speaks to the women in verses 3 through 5. Let's pick up in verse 3, Titus chapter 2, verse 3. It says, Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good. And so train the young women to love their husbands and children to be self-controlled, pure, working or workers at home, kind and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. So we can see by God's design, God had intended for women to focus their energies primarily into the home, to love their husbands, to love their children, and to be workers at home, to be uh, working at home, or once some translations say busy at home. The home is to be the primary area of responsibility. It's the center and hub of her attention and her activity. Now, this does not mean that women are never to be engaged in compensated labor outside the home. So please don't hear me say that. In fact, if we look at Proverbs 31, in fact, let's turn there to Proverbs chapter 31, which is the exemplary Woman, the exemplary wife that's given in Scripture, this chapter describing an excellent wife and what she is to be about. Chapter, Proverbs 31, verse 10 says, An excellent wife who can find. She is far more precious than jewels. So here he's going to go into who is this great, valuable, excellent wife and what is she about? Well, I want to. Uh, draw your attention to uh, uh, just a few verses. Look at verse 16. She considers a field and buys it. With the fruit of her hands, she plants a vineyard. Verse 18. She perceives that her merchandise is profitable. Her lamp does not go out at night. Verse 24. She makes linen garments and sells them. She delivers sashes to the merchant. So, merely by observation, to note the fact that that the example of a godly woman in Scripture is not one who just sits at home uh, with the kids and never leaves the house and never engages in anything else. There is precedence in the Scriptures for a woman who is engaged in the the commerce of the home and in gaining even revenue for the home, but her primary station, her primary area of responsibility is the home, and she understands that first and foremost. She says that she... She sees a field and she buys it. She's not going off into field real estate um, and leaving her children and home behind. She is um, understanding that and how it's bringing value into her home. So, 
I believe the testimony of the scriptures is that the, the, the primary area of responsibility for a wife and a mother is to be in the home. And this uh, can mean they are engaged in other activities, but the primary area of responsibility needs to be there. And so, friends, if we're going to recapture the biblical idea of our ideal of motherhood, we must recapture the importance of the home and woman's God-given role in working at home. Now, if the home is the basic building block of society, then mothers, you play a significant role in the next generation, in the next society, and in the next church. Because who those next adults are going to be down the line, making the decisions within our nation, making the decisions within our society and within our church, are going to uh, be shaped very importantly upon their experience within the home. So think about this. How do you want to see society and the world operate today? What are the values you would like to see um, exist in our country, exist in our society? Well, then set up the society of your home that way. That's where it all begins. You, you can begin to change the world one child at a time, one person at a time. We're involved in the work of disciple making here at the church. But one of the most effective means of disciple making is to disciple children in the ways of the Lord. They are most impressionable. There is such a unique opportunity to pour into children when they are young to, to know and to serve the Lord and to think with a Christian worldview about everything. Not just making sure that they've got fire insurance and their, their soul is in the right place, but to know that they, they have a fully developed Christian worldview and are fully equipped to live for Jesus in whatever place that they step into. And mothers, you have a great opportunity to be a part of that. You're well aware of the responsibility that God has placed upon parents to teach their children the things of the Lord. Right? Deuteronomy chapter 6 says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. We know that. It's the greatest commandment. But look at the instruction right after that. Verse 6, he says, And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart, and you shall teach them diligently to your children. That you talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, and when you rise. And you shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes, and you shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. These commandments, these, this word of God is to so infiltrate your family life that it just gets poured into your children. They don't know any other existence but a life that's surrounded by a love for God and his commandments. And they happily want to obey and follow in that way. We live in an age in which people say, oh, that's indoctrination. We don't want to indoctrinate. You know, want to leave it open to them to kind of choose which path they want to choose. Unfortunately, that's even getting pushed into gender, right? Parents not telling their kids what gender they are to let them choose what they want. But that just shows the insanity of it. Children are, are wet cement. They're waiting. They're waiting to, to be told something. They're waiting to believe something. And we need, as a Christian community, as Christian parents, to tell them the truth. And to gird that truth in there so when the cement settles, their foundation is firm and it goes deep within them. So we need to be about the training and the discipleship and the teaching of our children. Sure, in the education of our children, we often delegate that. But there's a difference between delegation and abdication. Let us not be those who abdicate the teaching and discipleship of our children, but merely delegate it, which means that we need to be involved in the discipleship and the education of our children all along the way. Know who your, teacher, your kids' teachers are. Know the kids, the curriculum your kids are going through. Because these people and these ideas are shaping our children. They're shaping the next generation. Jesus said in Luke chapter 6 verse 40 that everyone who is fully trained will be like his teacher. They will be like the one who taught them. So let me say, don't miss this opportunity to, to build into your children. Don't miss this opportunity as a church to build into uh, our children collectively. I want to read you a quote from an old preacher pastor from the 1800s named J.C. Ryle. He's got some good words for us. 
Look at what he says. He says, we are made what we are by training. Our character takes the form of that mold into which our first years are cast. We depend in a vast measure on those who bring us up. We get from them a color, a taste, a bias which cling to us more or less all of our lives. We catch the language of our mothers and and learn to speak it almost insensibly and unquestionably we catch something of their manners, ways, and mind at the same time. All this is one of God's merciful arrangements. He gives your children a mind that will receive impressions like moist clay. He gives them a disposition at the starting point of life to believe what you tell them and to take for granted what you advise them and to trust your word rather than a stranger's. He gives you, in short, a golden opportunity of doing them good. See that that opportunity be not neglected and thrown away. Once let slip, it is gone forever. So mothers... You've been entrusted with a great opportunity, with a great responsibility of training the next generation. But as we know, this is not exclusively the job of a mother, which leads us to our last principle this morning. If we're going to understand the value of motherhood, then we also, principle number four, need to understand the significance of fathers. The significance of fathers. We cannot speak about motherhood and hold them up on a pedestal all by themselves because God did not design them to do all this work that they, we've been talking about all by themselves. Mothers weren't designed to bear the whole weight of parenting and keeping a home by themselves. God intended from the very beginning for parenting to be shared between fathers and mothers, husbands and wives, and for the family to be led by the man. So while I've been emphasizing the importance of the home and the mother's important role in cultivating the home and pouring into children, you see, fathers are the ones who are ultimately biblically responsible for what goes on in their home. God calls fathers to lead their families. We already read 1 Corinthians 11 verse 3, right? Where where, uh, the, the head of a wife is her husband, just like the head of Christ is God. Therefore, he is the head. He is the, he is the leader. Remember at the very beginning, Adam and Eve sinned. Who did God go to speak to? Who did he hold responsible for, for how that couple operated? He went to Adam. He said, Adam, where are you? Of course, Adam tried to pass the blame, right? Well, God, see the woman you gave me, uh, she gave me this fruit and I ate. And then she passed the blame off to the serpent. But the point is, is that God saw Adam, the man, as the responsible party, and he held him to account. It's the same in our families. God holds the husband, the man, to account for our families. And this is why the qualifications for eldership involve this very principle. Turn to 1 Timothy chapter 3. God is clear that if there are going to be leaders in the church, they first and foremost need to be leaders in the home. First Timothy chapter 3, verse 1 says, If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, this is the office of elder, he, is, he desires a noble task. And then he goes on into uh, qualifications and look in verse 4. He must manage his own household well, with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? God makes it very clear that he holds the man accountable for how the household is managed. Certainly, the the man delegates much of that day-to-day responsibility, much of that day-to-day managing to his wife. And much of that takes place in that way. But the ultimate one who's held, account, held to account is the man, is the husband. Let's flip over to Colossians. Show you other examples of this. Colossians. 
Colossians 3. This is in Paul's list in which he's giving specific instructions to different categories of people within the church. Chapter 3, verse 18. Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. And verse 21, fathers, do not provoke your children, lest they become discouraged. Then he goes on to verse 22 to talk about bond servants. Now, the way that so much parenting is done today, and the way that so much is placed upon mothers, and fathers have no, no part, they've really backed off from the, the job of parenting, we would expect this verse to speak to mothers, because the mothers are the ones that do the discipline, and they handle the kids, and they... So, you know, mothers need the instructions on how to parent. But see, God is very clear, again, that it's the the men who are responsible for this. And so the instructions here is to fathers who discipline their children. The same we can see also in Ephesians, the similar kind of list. He speaks to different groups in the church, and he speaks to fathers. By implication, mothers as well. But again, he's speaking directly to fathers because they are the ones who are most directly responsible. So as I've said, too many husbands today, too many fathers today, leave the work of the kids to their wives. They don't just delegate, they're abdicating their role of being involved in the discipline and nurture and admonition and raising of their children. And of course, at a societal level, fathers are disappearing from homes. And we, there's plenty of research to show that uh, this is not gr- good for the children. Though God is gracious to work in such circumstances, his ideal is for two parents. And so let me just say to you men out there, speaking to myself as well, let me encourage you to take the lead in your family all the more. Take the lead in the discipline of your children. Take the lead in the nurture and training of your children. Take the lead in the education of your children. Don't leave all these decisions up to your wife to handle day in and day out. And then you come home at night and she asks you and wants to engage you in conversations about it. And you say that you don't want to talk about it and just leave it up to her. Because you see, if we truly value motherhood... If we truly value the work that mothers do, we're going to support them. And we're going to support them in the way that God designed, which means that husbands, we're going to come alongside them and help them to succeed in every way possible. To encourage them, to give them the support that they need, to make decisions that are too hard maybe for them to make. To think about the direction of the family, to think about the next turns. Let's not leave our mothers out to dry. Don't say you value them and then keep being a couch potato. Let's follow in the footsteps of our Savior and serve those whom we lead. Jesus didn't come to be served, but he came to serve. And therefore, the mark of true masculinity is a heart of service. And so as a church community, we can come alongside each other. Yes, parents are ultimately responsible for the discipleship of their children, but we as a community help one another. We're eyes and ears. We help instruct in those moments in Sunday school classes and out on the patio uh, when we see foolishness abound uh, through the hearts of our children, right? And we also come alongside those who maybe don't have a spouse to help in the rearing of their children. Let us come alongside and be that father who isn't there, be that mother who isn't there. Because we, we love all of our children as a church community. We are a family together. And we bear the responsibility to see that our children here are raised up in the fear and admonition of the Lord. So if we are going to value motherhood, we're not going to leave them stranded. We're going to see the significance of fathers, the significance of husbands, and coming alongside and helping to support them in that role. Think of a team, right? Think of like a soccer team. And you've got the goalie who says, listen, I really value your position out there forwards. You guys do such a great job. I love everything you do. I love watching it. Way to go. Keep it up. Keep 
scoring goals. And then he goes, sits on the sidelines. And the forwards are going, "Uh uh-uh, it can't work that way. I can't keep scoring goals if you're not going to stand in the goal. We've got our different roles on this team. We both need to pull our weight. It's different to be sure, but we both have a part to play. And if you truly value what I'm doing out there as a forward trying to score goals, then I'm going to see you backing me up, being the goalie back on the other side of the field. And the same is true in marriage. We cannot say that we support and we value motherhood and we write the cards and we, we say the things, on, particularly on Mother's Day. And yet the rest of the year shows that we leave them stranded and out to dry. Let that not be said of us in the Christian community. So if we are going to value motherhood, the Christian community must embrace these four principles. The worth of women, the value of children, the importance of the home, and the significance of fathers. So let's show the world what it looks like to value motherhood. Let's show the world what it looks like to embrace this great thing that God has designed. Motherhood is not a holdover from a bygone era. It's not a, a, a leftover from leave it to beaver. This is part of God's design since the very beginning. And it's a glorious thing. It's a beautiful thing. It's not just a good idea. It's how the creator intended our society and our families and this world to work. And so when Christians and then everyone and then a society values motherhood, everyone benefits. Because then the home and the families function the way God designed it. And what, stays, what begins in the home doesn't stay in the home. And it begins to trickle outward. So let's be a countercultural force in these matters and show the world that we don't just value mothers because they gave birth to us and we write the cards. But there's a holistic way and a God-centered biblical way that we support mothers, we embrace them, and we all have a part to play to, to voice that, to be salt and light to this watching world who might think of these things as so strange. But we show them that this is the way God designed it, and it works best when it, when it functions this way. Let's close in prayer. Our Father, we thank you for the gift of motherhood. We thank you for our mothers. We thank you that they are really modeling the, your mothering heart, your loving heart. That you love your own. That you have compassion on your own. That you listen to us as your children. You take care of us. And so, Father, as mothers live out their task and their role on a daily basis, May they realize that they are not doing something insignificant. May they see that they are partaking in the great task that their creator has set them to do. And I pray for our mothers, Father, that you would strengthen them today and for the days ahead. Give them the grit and the strength, the courage and the compassion to speak to their children to continue day in and day out with the tasks that are before them. And may you remind them of the gospel, that they are not judged by their performance. Father, they serve not to gain your favor, but because they've already gained it through Christ. May that free them to serve their families in tremendous ways. And may you use that to show yourself off to a watching world. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.